Welcome to the podcast, Risk is the New Kale. Each episode, I talk with folks who have figured out how to extract opportunity from risk. As someone who has spent a career controlling risk, I want to know those who embrace it. Risk is the new kale. Good for you. Hard to take. Slavi Diamandiev and I first met when he was in management consulting, and he killed it back then too. Smart, driven, and direct, which is why we get along. I enjoyed this podcast interview because his story reflects the incredible work ethic of new immigrants. For him, arriving in Canada from Bulgaria, working three jobs to pay for school, and bootstrapping his success. And now for him in particular, it's because he knows his children's opportunity depends on it. He worries about what's next for this country. And the theme of the conversation is that Canada's economy is at risk. We are not growing fast enough to dig ourselves out of the debt. As an economist who deliberately selected this country for its opportunity, he tells us how to fix it. Um, But with that, I'm just going to jump right in. And I do appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Let's do it. It's my pleasure. He is the practice lead for Deloitte Economic Advisory in Western Canada, and his clients are global private sector firms and federal and provincial public sector organizations. From strategy consulting to economic impact modeling, he's a frequent speaker on economics and policy. Welcome to Slavi Diamandiv. Okay, Slavi, you're in the business of predictions based on signal analysis. And economics is a tough business and the world is roiling at the moment. It's got to be pretty tough to be an economist right now. It's actually a very good time to be an economist because everyone wants to know what's going to happen. So as long as you have a, you know, a coherent explanation out there, there's a fair bit of demand for, uh, for economic analysis. Well, what, in your view, is more of an economic risk? Is it COVID or is it the supply chain issues that resulted or is it a war in Europe? Okay, so of the three factors that you mentioned, my view is that the third one, uh, the war, is probably introduces the most risk and uncertainty right now. And the reason I, I say that is because the ultimate outcome and, and impact of that of that event is going to be driven by political decisions, which is not something economics can predict for us. Um, if I sort of go in order here, I think the uh, the impact of um, of COVID is is now abating. Uh, we're seeing that as as more and more health restrictions are being lifted, um, and we're well on on our track to uh, returning to a pre-COVID level of economic activity. Now, there's always the the chance that a new variant will come around and uh, some of the health restrictions are going to have to be reintroduced. But I think we've learned how to cope with this particular virus. And given the level of vaccinations, particularly in Canada, um, I would say that that risk is fairly limited. Um, on the supply chain question, I, uh, there certainly continues to be struggles with, with a broad range of, of products. One of the reasons why this is happening is not only because of um, the COVID disruption, which has uh, 
um, disrupted the ability of um, ships and trucks to move uh, products around, but but also because as a result of um, of COVID and the restrictions on services, uh, people in mass have shifted their spending towards goods. And so part of this is driven by the demand for goods, which is sky high and is, 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 it causes difficulties being met. And so I say that because I think as people's um, spending begin to shift back to more towards services, and as we see the uh, effects of interest rate increases tamper down people spending, I actually think those supply chain challenges are going to resolve themselves uh, in the near future. Oh, that's interesting. Just naturally, they're just going to fall off because the demand falls off. Uh, to a certain extent. And then on the other side, I think uh, with the restrictions coming uh, coming off now, there's a lot more capacity in the system, in ports and trucking companies, et cetera, et cetera, to, to, to simply move the goods faster. Now, this isn't taking into account the effects of the of the war in Ukraine, which one of which is is further uh, exacerbation of the supply chain issues, because, um, you know, in areas such as um, energy exports, wheat exports, uh, things have really gra- grounded to a halt and Ukraine and Russia export an, an enormous share of those products globally. Um, wheat, for example, is as high as 30% of the global exports come from these countries. And so the fact that there are ships stranded in, in the Black Sea, not able to bring that wheat to market is causing a lot of um, anxiety. And it's likely going to result in some shortage of food, quite frankly, in the developed developing um, areas of the world and everywhere else is going to result in higher prices. And so that inflationary pressure uh, is bad on its own, but then it would be even worse if it forces uh, central banks to raise interest rates, which is then going to make the, the the cost of living even higher for people who have borrowed during the recession. So there's a, ch- a chain of events here which can be very dr- det- detrimental um, to, to people all over the world. Uh, one little known fact I would just mention is that uh, Ukraine is actually a major exporter of um, palladium uh, as well as neon and those are critical minerals that are used in semiconductors and so this this issue with ukraine may actually impact the global supply of semiconductors which are everywhere uh, from cars to you know household products and so those are the kinds of things that i think can go really uh, in a bad direction even if the war itself doesn't doesn't escalate to more countries just in the last decade, we've had three major events globally that have just driven home how connected our economies are. Even a relatively small economy like Canada's, so we had the sort of the the finance collapse, as it were, that just sort of swept through um, most of the uh, Western nations and impacted sort of global issues, and then. COVID, which shocked everybody, no one saw it coming, and yet it had been predicted for generation. Um, and now this uh, terrible event that's happening um, in Eastern Europe. So this idea that Canada is so uniquely tied to this one country, I mean, obviously not just Canada, but many, many countries. And let, let's just focus on Canada now as a small economy in an interconnected world. You've talked very clearly about what Canada needs to do, um, and maybe in the last couple of weeks, even more imperative, 
let's talk about innovation and how we're going to get our double-digit growth as a country. Uh, okay, so maybe to set the, the table here, one of the main challenges for Canada right now is that our long-term rate of growth for our economy is very anemic. It's somewhere between one and a half and 1.8%, let's say in that range, which is nowhere near where it needs to be to continue to improve our standard of, of life for the people here, uh, not to mention for us to be able to sort of grow out of the massive debt that we have um, uh, accumulated over, uh, during COVID. Uh, in many provinces in Canada, the provincial debt combined with the federal debt load is now over 100% of the um, provincial GDP, which is uh, a bit of a red line for economists. Uh, and so, you know, as much as people want to think about us growing out of this, uh, you know, the, the harsh reality is that our long-term growth is only explained by three factors. One is the rate of accumulation of capital in our country, which relies on business investment. Uh, and business investment has been a perennial weak spot in our economy. In fact, last year, uh, we saw a, a, a decrease in the capital stock in the country. So if you think about all the machinery and equipment that exists and all the productive real estate that exists in the country, uh, the value of that actually declined because it's, it's um, uh, you know, depreciating faster than businesses are investing in it. And that, that's a shocking statistic, I think. Uh, so that's, that's one factor that's not going in our, in our direction. The other one is the growth of the labor force. Obviously, if you want to have a bigger economy, one way to get there is to have more working people. Uh, and because of our demographic challenge, uh, which is a combination of low fertility rates, um, you know, rapid aging of our population, retirement of the baby boomers who are exiting the workforce, uh, that rate of growth of the workforce is also very low. It's probably around 1.2%, let's say. Uh, and and the, last, the last lever, the last factor is productivity. So the, the, the productivity of the labor and capital that you have. Uh, and this to me is where a lot more focus needs to be, to be put because one way to be more productive is to be more innovative. Uh, of course, to, to get there, you need to put in place a lot of policy and um, uh, you know, sort of investments uh, to make it happen. Some of it have to do with um, uh, you know, the reg regulatory complexity and the, the tax burden that, that folks face. Um, human capital is a major driver of, of innovation and productivity um, and so forth and so forth. So uh, maybe I'll pause here and let you, let you ask another question. Okay. If Canada has uh, these, you know, very few levers, but extremely important ones, and part of the solution to more workers is to increase our immigration. Does Canada stand a chance when people can move to any country on the planet, and, and many are trying, um, are we a safe enough and, um, and wealthy enough and environmentally clean enough country that we actually should have amazing talent moving to the country? Like, is that a trajectory that you would see and support? I think it's it's quite evident that people want to come and live here. 
uh, our immigration as a portion of our population is very high. I've been here since uh, 2000, and even in, in the time that I've been here, our population has gone up by millions. And that's uh, uh, going in the exact opposite direction in many other developed countries, particularly in Europe. And so I think there's a lot of evidence that people want to come here. There is a question around what kinds of people are we attracting, right? And uh, to your point around building up our human capital and, and productive workforce, uh, that re keeping those people here is going to take more than just offering them, you know, uh, an environmentally friendly lifestyle, um, you know, in a safe uh, a safe environment to raise their families. I think a lot of uh, particularly young single people, they come here because of the upward mobility in our in our system. And if those folks feel that um, their efforts aren't going to um, reap benefits because they're going to be taxed to death as they're as they progress through the income brackets, or that they're actually not able to move up the income brackets. Uh, because of structural barriers, uh, that's very detrimental. And I think a lot more can be done um, in, on those aspects uh, to make it a desirable place to stay. Um, one other thing to, to, to sort of keep in mind here is that, um, you know, young people that, um, uh, that sort of, that, that try to su uh, su succeed through the income brackets um, also need to be accumulating capital. And um, I say that as somebody who has come to the country with with, with nothing, uh, and even though I have I have learned a fair bit um, in terms of uh, compared to others, it's very difficult to catch up for new immigrants in terms of the uh, wealth that they're accumulating to to folks that are already in the country and perhaps have uh, families that are um, you know helping them out, and so because our um, the assets are appreciating so quickly, especially real estate assets. You know, for, for newcomers, it can seem very daunting achieving a similar level of lifestyle as someone who was born here, mm -hmm. even if they're being paid well. And so helping, helping those folks accumulate capital, accumulate wealth, which can then be invested and they can get on, a, on that same um, trajectory of appreciating assets, is 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 very important and part of that is not taxing all of you know not taxing them to death even if they're uh earning income in the higher brackets hopefully that made uh made some sense there but i think it's a real issue and i see a lot of people sort of despairing on that front right if, if you're never going to be able to afford a house why stay here it's such an important point because if there's barriers to recognizing people's credentials in the first place and then the treadmill to get on the real estate uh, growth um, and to accumulate capital through that way. If that is just so untenable that people can't even go there, I think that's a really fair question. Why would people come? Um, and those are structural barriers that, as you say, that's a public policy uh, debate and issue about uh, how we actually change that. And that leads me to um, sort of a little bit of a parallel question here, which is I've always been curious about productivity, one of the, I think the third lever that you mentioned, and why Canadians uh, on balance have lower productivity rates than Americans. We're as entrepreneurial, um, but what is it about the way we have structured our economy that we actually don't show up as being 
um, as productive, and we need to increase that rate. This is a really challenging question to answer, and a lot of um, studies and thinking has been done. I can only mention some of the factors. Um, uh, you know, I, I think one aspect of of the productivity question is the the actual composition of our of our industry. If you take BC as an example, we are overweight economically in sectors where they're so labor intensive that it's, it's simply difficult to raise productivity up. So you think about the restaurant uh, industry, for example, or accommodation, hotels, uh, tourism. These are labor intensive sectors where it's, it's just hard to automate. It's hard to um, make someone you know, produce twice as much output as they as they did yesterday, right? So part of this is adjusting our industry mix, or at least balancing it, uh, so that there are there are industries growing here that are highly productive, and they sort of compensate um, for some of these other industries, which are still important for for quality of life here. So that's part of the answer. The other structural part of the answer is the fact that. The number of small companies, so think about three to let's say 10 people is is overwhelming in Canada and in BC. It's it's probably 90%, maybe more of what exists here. And it's the fact is it's very hard for a small company like that to make investments uh, that increase productivity. In contrast, that large companies, for example, or mining companies are highly productive. I mean, the the output per uh, employee at a mining company can be as high as $700,000 per year. The output um, of a worker in a small company company can be as small as, as little as 40,000. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a massive gap, which then impacts what people can earn. Because if you're not generating value, it's difficult to be paid a high salary. And so that's, that's another sort of structure. So getting small companies to grow is, uh, is an important part of the solution. Um, other factors that are often mentioned is a bit of a cultural difference where um, you know, perhaps there's a bit more uh, complacency in Canada or um, a more of a um, uh, sort of conservative attitude when it comes to making investments in, in new technology uh, and really going about uh, you know, being on the leading edge of, of implementation and adoption of technology. Uh, and it's it's ironic that we're actually a great generator of startups, which tend to first pilot their, their products and get their first customers abroad. And that's detrimental to the growth of those startups and, and also detrimental to our um, economy because we're not reaping the benefits of that innovation. And I think what's kind of tragic is that over time, what that leads to is, um, you know, our our region here becoming a bit of a feeder feeder region to the to the Silicon Valley's of the world, where we incubate small companies um, and we attract talented individuals just to see all of that leave as soon as they gain some maturity and actually begin to generate uh, value. And so that's 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 how I would answer that question. All right. So, Slavi, I'd really be interested in your opinion about the risks on the horizon for young people graduating today. And are those the same or are they different for folks who are currently working? 
I'm I'm happy to share some some opinions of that, although I have not been in that category for some time now. Uh, I I think one of the one of the difficulties for young people right now is the choice that is available to them, particularly for folks graduating with higher levels of education, and especially those that have some experience. It's an incredibly hot labor market at the moment, and what that re- can result um, in is a is the phenomenon of hopping around. And I, I see that quite often now uh, in the resumes we get. Um, and so I think what's causing it is is, is the fact that there is a scarcity in, in educated uh, workers right now. Uh, and by the way, the demand for skilled, skilled labor right now is way higher than it was prior to COVID. So that's one of the labor categories where demand is, is, is rapidly outpacing uh, supply and I think it's going to get worse. And so, it's actually very easy right now for someone with with a high level of education and a good skill set to to walk across the street and get, you know, 15, 20% bump in their compensation, uh, which is very tempting. And I think the challenge is balancing that against the longer term investment one needs to make into acquiring uh, deeper knowledge and building relationships. Um, you know, with their with their current employer. And so as much as it's good to get broad experience, if that comes at the expense of, of, of actually investing in your in your skill set, knowledge and relationships, I think it's, it's detrimental over the long term. And I would I would suggest people think about that. It's, it's a good problem to have, I think, but it's it does introduce this risk of of just being very short term focused and, and not understanding that nothing good long-term comes without patience and investment in yourself and in the people that you're working with. Yeah, thank you for that. I I think we've seen at various times in um, Canadian history where extremely hot labor markets, whether that's for um, professionals, whether that's for trades, um, whether that's in healthcare, it has... Um, it has created winners and losers. And I think in some respects, when people chase the money to your point, they lose out long-term because they're in a position where they're gonna be part of that commodity spending. So they're gonna buy a lot of toys, but they're going to miss out on the other aspect that you mentioned, the value of relationships, of attaining wisdom and their network building. and. Um, being able to be seen as credible and loyal to a company at the same time. That, exactly, exactly. And inevitably, it catches up with you because if for to achieve high levels of compensation, you have to generate a lot of value. And by switching from one position to another very quickly, you're actually not allowing yourself to progress in your capabilities, skill sets and knowledge to be able to generate that value. So there's a happy medium somewhere in there. In my simple mind is somewhere around five, at least five, maybe six years uh, to, to allow you to kind of take the next step. about challenges for starting career, um, I want to talk about you because you came to Canada, you mentioned in 2000, you came as a student. While you were at UBC, you received the Governor General 
academic medal for the highest academic standing in a bachelor degree program in Canada, which is amazing. Maybe tell me a bit about that time in your life and what was at risk for you as a student then? Sure. So uh, just for the record, I actually uh, started in Peterborough, Ontario. I came uh, there when I was uh, 18 and I came on my own. So my family is still back in my uh, original country, uh, which is Bulgaria. And so when, when I arrived in, in Peterborough, I, I, um, I started doing three, three different jobs in addition to, to studying. Uh, I was shoveling snow in in the winter, as you do in that in that area of the world, um, washing dishes at the student cafeteria, and then uh, loading trucks with furniture uh, to to kind of be able to to pay for my living expenses. In addition to that, I had to maintain a, a very high academic average so that I can consistently win scholarships and awards. Uh, otherwise, I, I wouldn't have been able to pay for my tuition. And so, I, to be honest, it wasn't a choice as much; it was a, a necessity. Uh, and so, that's that's sort of how how this came about. When I think about what was at risk for me, um, really, it was having to go back to my home country, which was in a very difficult economic state at at that time. And so, my overriding objective in life was essentially to stay in Canada, and that in some ways defined my choices. And I would say that as as sort of um, negative as it may sound, it, it's actually relieved some of the pressure that I see many other young people have today where there's infinite possibilities in front of them because it sort of gives you that purpose and an overarching objective that helps you make choices consistent with that with that objective. So that's how it worked for me. Um, one last thing I'd mention is I, um, I was, f- I, you know, fortunate that my my parents uh, basically invested what they had in in me coming to Canada, uh, but at the same time I was cognizant that my younger sister couldn't benefit from the same level of of support and investment at the time. So I always had certain degree of responsibility to to generate return on that investment, and that's how I approached my career following my education. That's a very strong value for you, responsibility. I I, I think it was imposed on me. I don't think I was born responsible, but I think you sort of, um, you know, with with no one to lean on necessarily, it's sort of um, uh, you you begin to develop it yourself. I've I've often thought that um, Europe in general has a culture of scarcity uh, coming from the last couple generations after two world wars and Canada and the US has a culture of abundance. And I think that that actually filters down to your point around uh, having this luxury of choice versus having a very stark choice if you're in um, Western or Eastern Europe about you know how you're going to move ahead. There is a lot of truth to that. A lot of truth to that. At the same time, I I find the um, attitude of particularly as you move west through the country um, to be one of um, uh, seeing the opportunities in life and, and chasing those opportunities. And I've certainly never felt um, uh, discriminated on the basis of my origin. I know others have in our country. 
Um, but I, I've been lucky not to have been, and I'm almost certain that that would have been a factor had I gone to Western Europe. Uh, and so I think that's an advantage that Canada has, and it's part of our brand as a country that we should be aggressively uh, exploiting, if you will, to attract more more talent here. It, it's, it's almost, um, it looks very daunting for a young person uh, that's not been born in the right family uh, to to get to the level that they could get here to replicate that in 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 a Western uh, European country necessarily, uh, and so anyway, there's 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 pluses and minuses, but I think Canada overall is is in a very good position to attract that type of talent, if we can make it possible for them to to realize the the fruits of their labor. So we have the we have the sort of marketing globally around the kind of country that we are, but now we need these uh, systemic structures around how somebody is successful in this country. We need to work on those is what I heard you say earlier. Exactly. I heard um, once a presentation by, um, uh, by someone who, who had studied the brand of Canada around the world among young people. And the, the overwhelming uh, response to what, what Brandes Canada um, have was that it's, that it's nice. And so it's, 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 it's a funny thing because it's, it's a positive quality to be nice, but to me it feels uh, highly insufficient. <laughs> and I just have to wonder, can we be more than nice? Can we be perhaps innovative? Yeah. Right. Or um, ambitious or, you know, hyper successful. I mean, you can think of a lot of other uh, terms that you'd want to be called beyond beyond being labeled as nice. And, and that's the opportunity, I think, for our country and uh, for for improving our brand, if you will. My personal feeling is that Canada needs to think about different words, to your point. And I would start with kind, because I think kindness is a superpower. But then after that is courageous and innovative. I love it. So, Slavi, you've done amazingly as this professional in your life. And I'm just wondering, how do you personally assess risk and opportunity? Like, what kinds of things do you trade off? I'll give it a, a try. Uh, first of all, when I think about risk, I, I try to think of it as calculated risk. I think there's a lot of confusion when someone goes down a path that is uncertain, whether that's uh, you know uh, viewed as oh someone is just you know taking a leap of faith. In point of fact, um, calculating the risk you're taking is 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 the solution of that dilemma. And um, you may not know what's going to happen, but if you have a, a good sense of the of the magnitude and the impact. Um, and the likelihood of, of being successful, uh, then you can make an informed, proper decision whether that's worth the, the return you're expecting or, or not. And the, the, the biggest, I think, problem with, peop- with companies and, and, and individuals is, is, is not that they take risks, but they, but the, they actually don't understand the risk they're, they're taking. Uh, the other comment I'll, uh, I'll make here is that Every choice you make carries risk, including the choice of doing nothing. And to economists, that come 
comes quite um, intuitively because we we have coined the term opportunity cost, which specifically measures what you're giving up uh, by doing nothing or doing something as opposed to an alternative. But I think for many um, non-economists, that concept can get lost. And so thinking about the opportunity you're giving up and the fact that there is risk with that loss because you may not come about the same opportunity again, or perhaps your next set of choices would be would be worse, uh, is, is something you have to take into account, especially in a world that's moving very quickly and evolving very quickly. And we see that with companies as well. Not not doing anything is is almost assuring your obsolescence within within matter of, of, of years. So that actually carries very high level of risk. Um, so hopefully that gives a start here on an answer. Uh, I'll, I'll make one one more constructive, um, I guess, advice here. When I think about my own choices, my career choices, uh, in my business choices, one of the overarching, um, I guess, uh, considerations for me is, is the consistency of the choice I'm making with the brand I want to have in the marketplace and with my history to date. I think if, um, if, if people make sure that what they're choosing can be explained naturally from where they've been and where they want to go and reinforces how they want to be seen in the marketplace, even if you make the, the, the wrong decision, for the lack of a better term, or you fail at whatever endeavor you're, you're embarking on, your risks are actually significantly diminished because it becomes part of your story and your narrative that people can can come around. Uh, and I, I find that that consistency in, in sort of you following your purpose actually has a convening power. It draws people toward you and it creates what I, what I call followership in business. Those are the people that folks want to be behind because they're seen as um, as, as people that stick to their objective and, and 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 they have a certain level of predictability in their actions. The opposite is can be very stressful actually for people to 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 deal with. And and I don't want to go too far here philosophically, but that's that's part of how our minds are wired is to try to understand that the, the broader story and the purpose of, of what's happening. And so you have to be able to offer that to the marketplace. I think that makes incredible sense. And I think from a, a personal perspective, it does require you as a leader to really be thoughtful about how other people perceive you um, and and your effect on others. Because unless you think about the other person and have some empathy, it's hard for you to kind of analyze your own behaviors and the choices that you make as being consistent in terms of how other people would perceive that. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I, I think it doesn't matter at what point someone's in their career too to actually hear that and take it in. Maybe coming down to some of the, the final questions, we live in an amazing part of the world. And what do we need to do, in your view, to capitalize on the opportunity here? Are there other risks besides the economy that keep you up at night? Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I think I spoke a fair bit about the, the economy. Um, you know, if I think more about the, the social aspect of, of our lives, um, 
my fear is the continuous polarization of our society. And it's, uh, you know, it's a much bigger trend than just British Columbia. Uh, but increasingly, I feel there isn't the public forum where ideas are being ex exchanged in a um, respectful manner that uh, at a minimum is being recognized by the other side. And there's many dimensions to that, um, including, um, not in the least of which is the rural urban dimension. And uh, for a province like BC, which is vast, yet many people live in a bit of an urban bubble, it, it's often difficult to understand the perspective of people that, that, that live in, um, uh, in, in our rural communities, um, not to mention indigenous communities. And, and so that's, that's causing me some, some angst, the fact that um, this chasm appears to be growing. Um, and I have the benefit as an economist of understanding the, how inter, intertwined our communities actually are and how much we, um, those of us who live in, in the metro areas, benefit from what happens in the rural areas and vice versa. I, I think most people are a little bit oblivious to that. Uh, and that shapes people's views on uh, anything from politics to economics to what what kinds of social priorities they want to see immigration etc but i think trying to keep our um you know our province uh somewhat united is um is going to be a major challenge in the years ahead uh, and then you sort of open that up to the level of canada where we have you know stark differences between provinces uh and then even more around the world that's what's causing me a fair bit of anxiety. I think if there's one positive thing that may come from the conflict in Ukraine is maybe that that wake up hole that and, and by that I mean freedom of choice, uh, independent media, freedom of movement, access to products. Uh, you know, th these are things that we typically take for granted, but they can quickly, quickly disappear. I feel that these crises that we've had, that in a way it, it invites the conversation about how connected we are and how dependent we are rural to urban. When we saw the, the highways not being passable and what it meant in the sort of the stopping of the distribution of goods, there was sort of this, oh, that's right, they come through rural BC uh, from Alberta or out to the port. Um, or this is what it means when we actually can't go visit friends or family or we can't get goods from central or northern BC down to the coast. I hope that we learn from those kinds of crises, to your point, uh, that that's the opportunity in all of this. Okay, we're going to sort of change tactics here. Slavi, you have traveled all over the world and it's something that I know you personally love. And one of the things that I really appreciate about you is this story around you visiting some of the biggest um, monitor lizards on Earth, so the Komodo dragons, and walking through a Komodo dragon park. I find these giant lizards both fascinating and completely uh, repellent at the same time, given what they can do if they bite you. So tell me about that experience. Very good. I'm glad you asked that question. So I was in Indonesia 10 years ago, and at the time, um, 
uh, on a on a small budget backpacking, getting to see the, the lizards who live in on only two islands in in the country, uh, was was actually a very sketchy experience. It involved negotiating with, uh, you know, four local people that don't speak any English, to get on a wooden boat for two days without any facilities whatsoever. Um, so so that was uh, that was interesting, uh, but. Ultimately, seeing seeing the Komodo dragons is a is is a bit of a life changing experience. I, I I would liken it to seeing the mountain gorillas, which which I, I have also seen in in Rwanda. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with what a Komodo dragon is, it's it's uh, it can be as as large as a three meter um, monster, and they actually occupy very interesting ecological niches uh, on the islands because as as uh, young Komodo dragons, they're, they're, they're tiny lizards that live in the trees uh, and feed on insects and other small, um, small animals. When they're fully grown, um, they can eat 80 kilograms of meat per, per meal, which is more than I weigh. Uh, they, they also run at 40 kilometers an hour when they're fully charged up so they could easily catch up with you uh, and they have um, a special bacteria in their saliva that uh, essentially causes very rapid infection in their victims which is how they kill some of the larger game including deer uh, they would bite them and wait for them to become completely um, anemic and, and and then eat them so it was really fascinating quite it felt quite dangerous we had a, a guide with us at all times with a with a shotgun uh, and um, yeah, just to see those uh, uh, dragons, it, it's it was it was quite something. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I have heard that they prefer to eat dead things, so maybe that's one advantage. But still, the fact that they can outrun you and they don't look very swift when you see a video of them. But and if you do get bitten, you're looking at a very expensive airlift by helicopter from the island to the nearest hospital which is many hours away um so not a not something you want to you want to take take advantage of so are you going anywhere else in the near term well on my bucket list they have um antarctica madagascar and the galapagos islands if i had to pick three those would be the three but um in the near term i'm i'm gonna go back to my home country and visit my family because uh, I haven't seen them for three years because of COVID. So that's what's coming up next, a trip to Bulgaria in the summer. Beautiful. Lastly, Slavi, if you could make anything better on this planet, and I mean anything, what would it be? Y you know, I have a real soft spot for biodiversity. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a, maybe uh, uh, an overused term, but I, I actually do see a lot of value in maintaining different forms of life on, on this planet. And I don't always agree with how it's being framed. I, I have an allergic reaction to the term Mother Earth and how we're hurting, hurting our Mother Earth. You know, someone who is, has a basic understanding of geology, um, I have no doubt that, you know, in a million years, even if we killed everything on our planet, it'll come back uh, and potentially be even more diverse. But I think it'll be very sad for our, for our kids and our grandkids if they can't, you know, go and see a, a live coral reef 
or go to Africa and see giraffes. And I'm afraid we're rapidly moving in that in that direction, despite um, efforts that are being made. It's going to take, I think, a lot more, um, and it cannot be sort of isolated in small different pockets. We would have to think of about some larger scale preservation of of, of ecosystems, and, and that I think is going to be very difficult. Well, those are prophetic words, and we need to heed your advice, because that's absolutely right. That's our responsibility to the next generation, for sure. Slavi, thank you very much. You're very welcome.